Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome co-host, regular co-host and guest for the last, um, let me think, 2001. That makes it 21 years. We're coming up, we're coming of age. Russell Hanby. Welcome, Russell. Thanks, Henry. How are you today? Good. 21 years, last August. Yes, we've got the key to the door now, haven't we? We have the key to the door. Yes, we've grown up. And um, we've matured. That's the program we're talking about. <laughs> How are you, yeah. my friend? I'm, I'm well, thanks, yes. And we've got a great program here. We've got some interesting topics. So the first one, Russell, is the age. Abusive parents banned by schools. This one comes close to home, actually, in terms of our profession. An aggressive parent who verbally abused school staff in the presence of primary students and parents swore at a child and then defied three requests to leave the school grounds has been restricted from visiting or contacting the school for 12 months. Sadly, this sort of thing is... Uh, seems to be on the increase across the system. Mm. Yeah, it uh, followed the uh, principal's written warning to uh, not be aggressive or rude to teachers. Now, Victoria's new school community safety orders empower principals to ban parents and carers who threaten staff or interfere with school operations from visiting or contacting the school except under strict conditions. Now, so far, two orders have been made after police were called to remove an aggressive parent from the school grounds. Now, it follows a uh, a rise in aggressive and abusive behaviour by parents. Before the community safety orders took effect, WorkSafe accepted 22 claims from teachers involving abuse, threats or assaults. These range from spitting, swearing, abusive language, gendered violence and physical assault. And there have been two, three orders to date altogether, two for a 14-day bans. So uh, the parents, Victoria Executive Officer Gail McCarty, she's a bit worried. She fears the orders could be open to misuse with uh, principals acting prematurely, etc. But uh, it seems that it's an, an unnecessary, uh, unnecessary but uh, unfortunate way we're going. Yeah, well, it's on the rise. Uh, there's no question about that across the system. And it's uh, look, it, it doesn't do teachers any good. It doesn't do parents any good. And I think most of all, it's a terrible example. I think kids would be very, very um, distressed by all that. And as a role model, it doesn't work. But uh, yeah, look, um, some parents, I can understand it. They're under great stress. They love their kids. Um, anger management or higher, strong emotional control is something that clearly they need. Look, I guess also in some cases um, we get it wrong too. It's uh, um, our profession. We're human beings too. Um, there's a lot of people under stress in there and things can escalate very quickly. But, of course, uh, what we're talking about here is... Uh, parent-generated um, unacceptable behaviour that would lead to the orders. Um, I, I, I'm not sure teachers and principal, principals in particular would be invoking them at the drop of the hat because, as I would understand it, Russell, as soon as you do that, um, I've done it, I think, twice in my career, um, you've still got to build a bridge at the end of it because the children are still at the school and the, the bottom line is uh, you do need some sort of workable relationship with the family and I guess uh, at best you can hope that these things give you a bit of time for, for the people to cool down and then come and have some rational uh, reconciliation a conversation with the school and, and work forward. But it, it's certainly impacting on people's well-being and I'd say on whether some people even want to come into the profession or stay. 
That's right. And uh, do you think it's becoming more prevalent in the last 10 years or becoming more in the public eye perhaps in the last 10 years? It's becoming more prevalent uh, and Mm. it's becoming as a consequence more in the public eye. Um, No, no, definitely. Um, Look, look, parents are much more involved in every aspect of school now than they were 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I started, um, uh, right through to a far more competitive uh, choice of school environment that we have. Um, I, I think also family, and it, it peaks and troughs a little bit. COVID certainly didn't help. People are under pressure. And I think post-COVID, there's a lot of um, pent-up frustration, resentment, anger, depression, all those things are in there coming to the fore. Um, but no, I would say over my career, I've seen it increase quite a, quite significantly. When you talk to people, it appears certainly to be more intense and more people, um, you know, are packing their bags from the profession because of it. Mm. Yes, you, you, you wouldn't, you could, I can't understand teachers saying, I don't need this, I'm out of here. Uh, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what I've heard from some people. Um, when you were in, did you have much of this? No, not really. Uh, very little. In fact, the only time parents or well, secondary schools have always been a slightly different. I think it's different today. But I noticed we used to notice the primary parents are very much involved more in the day-to-day running and they're always up at the school and they go to the assemblies. Not so much in secondary, except when uh, I, as a say, a form-level coordinator, used to ask parents to come and to talk about their kids' behaviour. But I didn't have any uh, threats or anything like that at all. No, no. Um, yes, certainly things. You talk to people out in the community. I go to you know the shopping centres and whatever, and clearly um, there is a cohort of people out there um, that uh, make life difficult to shop assistants, people in the hospitality industry. Um, everywhere you go, um, you hear from pe- you do hear people say, "Gee whiz, you know, the concept of respect for some people just does not exist." So, you know, it's not just in schools, parents. Um, I think children, though, being the most significant uh, factor in most people's lives, um, the temperature can rise much more quickly when you're stressed about something. And it involves your child, and if it's your car or your food or your, you know, your your, your lawnmower or something, so I think the point. Is, and health, health's another one too. I think um, that would uh, people in hospitals may at times, I suspect, um, feel the the pointy end of people's frustrations in a bad way, and it. It's just, uh, I just hope we can get past all that, Russ. What's um, this new deal going on on wheels? You got an e-scooter? <coughs> No, I haven't actually. Uh, Tell us <laughs> the dangers of e-scooters will be the focus of a new road safety initiative for young drivers, and um, uh, yes, the police have backed uh, a fit to drive foundation. Uh, and e-scooter boom recently in the last uh, few months has uh, led to confusion around their rules for use and safe riding techniques. Uh, they're trialling these uh, yellow and uh, green ones um, in. Uh, Melbourne, Yarra, uh, City of Yarra, Port Phillip and the City of Ballarat uh, for the last 12 months up to February next year. And um, the two companies are Lime and Neuron. In fact, they've made 2.3 million trips in the past nine months. Now, currently, they cannot be used on public roads and only on private property. Um, Now, an increase in serious injuries such as head and limb trauma has occurred. There were 24 recorded in 2020 to 2021. About 49 in 21 to 22 uh, at the state's trauma centre. 
So it's over doubled, really. Now, the Green Light Initiative, which is what it's called, will target 16 to 25-year-old learners and their supervising drivers. So they're targeting the L-platers, um, and uh, they'll be learning about e-scooters and tram safety. Uh, it involves a face-to-face -face program uh, before they get their their peas, I guess. And uh, the technology distractions are also highlighted, like use of mobile phones and social media answering while they're driving. And there'll be lots of advice about that. So that's the initiative to educate the young ones. It's interesting. I was in, and we're way behind some of the countries overseas. I was in Chile uh, before COVID hit, and I was in San Diego, a big city. These scooters are everywhere in there, and people, you know, use them pretty sensibly. Uh, um, it, uh, it's it's very much part of their their furniture on the of in terms of transport. It, uh, um, I was quite amazed at you know how widely used and how well they were used widely russell i'm sure there are accidents i didn't see any but um when you think here we are you know stumbling and stuttering around with these scooters <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, other countries have got them and oh, you know it's just like ho-hum we use them um well, well, we've got a long brisbane, way we've got a long way to go <laughs> yeah well brisbane's had them orange ones for years now yeah. and, uh, everyone uses them uh, businessmen in suits to the young teenagers yes. who, you know and they just go along merrily you know It'll be interesting. I just hope we don't build up. Look, we want them to be safe, but we don't want to build up a great big paperwork bureaucracy around them that makes them, you know, so much work to get on the road with them and on the that that people didn't shy away from them. Um, uh, you, you clearly want some rules and guidelines, but uh, you know, do we want to make the rules and guidelines bigger than Ben Hur, which uh, I think is always a possibility. Yeah, I think overall, if you use responsibly, they're a good way of getting around, aren't they, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was mm. uh, using them in San Diego and, um, you know, uh, started off a bit slowly and just gradually eased up into using them really well. And, you know, people there just use them, you know, as a matter of course. We need to take a short break. Can you hold the line, Russell? Yes, certainly. You listen to What's Making News with Henry Grossack, part of the Viewpoints program. I'm Sir Hanby, and we're going into our second segment now, Henry. Welcome back, Russell, and you're almost good enough to take my job, but not quite. No, no, I use make it never quite get it above you. That I've learned that you don't do that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely not. Even if you are <laughs> now, Russell, the age trigger warnings are everywhere, but do they work? New research says not in the slightest. In 2017, Monash University rolled out a controversial new pilot program. Warnings would be placed on 15 of the university's courses, letting students know the content about sexual assault, domestic and child abuse, suicide and animal cruelty, that it was potentially distressing, but it didn't have the impact. Tell us. Well, the uh, trigger warnings uh, pilot came after years of campaigning by the University Student Association. They wanted it uh, to prepare students, they said, who had previously had an anxiety or panic attack based on any previous traumatic experiences. But emerging researchers found that trigger warnings don't have any effect on a person's response uh, to uh, the content. Uh, in fact, Flinders University Associate Professor Melanie Takarangi says that there's really no meaningful difference of how people Re react to something. 
And our philosophy lecturer, Australian professor Kate Mann, says that the warnings allow sensitive students to repair themselves, but apparently it doesn't seem to work. Uh, in fact, a New Zealand study of 1,400 people, some of whom had uh, trigger warnings, uh, who read about or watched short films, which included car crashes, found no difference in anxiety, negative feelings or intrusive memories. So uh, that's um, what's happened there. There's no no increase really in uh, in allaying their fears. In fact, uh, the research shows they're just more anxious about the content to come. So in a funny way, it's counterproductive and counterintuitive. That's right. And it could also tickle, as they say, a curiosity, make people want to see these things more than necessary, perhaps, you know. Yeah, but as you say, it, uh, it, the warning might be the, the problem as much as the the content. So it's interesting how we come up with an idea. Well, it, I, I guess the research is showing that there's not much point in doing trigger warnings. No. And so uh, that came out. Surprised by that? Surprise. Yes, well, it's one of the few surveys that have come out in the negative, isn't it? Normally, people do a survey and the results more or less expected. But this one, uh, I was a bit surprised about. I'd say the people who backed it in the first place are probably equally surprised. I'm just guessing here, Russell, but I would think that they'd have been looking for the survey to confirm that the idea was a good idea. And I think they're being gazumped by that one. Uh, it's not uh, that good. What are they suggesting now? What's going to happen now? They're going to take all the warnings down? Well, I, I don't know. I suppose there's not much point if it, unless they probably do another survey to prove it again, but uh, or to show it. But uh, may as well not have them, don't you think? Well, yes. As long as the research and this is for the researchers, then that it has efficacy. The, that famous word that researchers always use—that is, do the results uh, stack up? And someone will look at the methodology and the sample size and see whether they um, they pass the test of significance, yeah. etc. Yes. I suppose one thing you could do is if you have been traumatised in the past by something and you know what's coming up, you could perhaps opt out of that session. That would be the only advantage of being foretold, perhaps, you know. Well, yes, and, and, and I can tell, therefore, from what you just said, Russell, that clearly fronting up here as the co-host hasn't traumatised you to the point of where you're speechless or you can't come. So clearly this is not a traumatic experience for you working with me. <laughs> no, I just think it's only half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Half an hour a week, 20. Yes. Did you realise it would be like this all those years ago or you would have, would have, would have mistrained me so I didn't get a gig on radio all those years oh, ago? Oh, no. I, I knew that it would kick off well. I'm, not, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised it's gone on so long over the years, you know. Me too. A lot of these, you lot never of these know. Programs, a lot of programs start and they might go 10 years and they just die. But no, what's making news and uh, viewpoints is barreling on, isn't it? It is, it is. It's on KC Radio 97.7 FM. We do package our program. So you appear here in two places. One is obviously in the podcast series and then when you go down to the station to do your show live, you can listen to yourself on, uh, on uh, Viewpoints. <laughs> I could too if I wanted to. Yeah. Do you ever I'd introduce be, yourself? I'd have to be on the, no, it'd have to be on the Friday. I'm there on a different day, so that's all right. <laughs> all right. Now, Russell, um, Mum's the World. Yes. A play uh, on Mum's the Word, isn't it? That's right, yes. Um, Melbourne mums are very resilient under stress, uh, according to a new study of the mental health effects of the pandemic and lockdowns of young families. Yes, uh, Megan Galbally, director of Monash University Centre for Women and Children's Mental Health, 
She studied how Melbourne mums with toddlers coped with the pressure of limited contact with family and support, closed playgrounds, childcare centres and kindergartens during lockdowns. Now, you'd think, oh, well, everyone would be affected negatively, but another study found that no difference was there for parenting stress or preschool child mental health between the pre-pandemic and the pandemic parents and children. So perhaps surprisingly, there was no difference in their stress or anxiety. But I did find more depressions since the pandemic than pre-pandemic, especially those with a history of depression. But now the study was able to compare using identical measures of, of the groups before the pandemic and a group during the pandemic, looking at mothers and children's mental health. And Professor Galvalli said the possibility that parenting and early childhood mental health, at least in the short term, may be resilient. So that's an interesting uh, fact too, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's not all bad news, is it? it no. It, it shows that people, to a, to a significant extent, are adaptable and resilient, you know, more so than we think. Yes. And I read in the article, when even when the playgrounds were closed, the parents sort of had their own little playgrounds in the backyards and they improvised and uh, sort of got around it a bit that way too, didn't they? There's, they lots, there's lots of ways of getting around things. And I think at the end of the day, um, when you look across the world, people find some way to often make as good a situation as is possible out of the circumstances. And, yeah, look, it's been horrendous and a lot of people have suffered enormously. But, yep, at the same time, um, many have found a way to to find a little bit of sunshine in there, Russ. Mm, which now, is good. Which is good. Now, this is a fascinating one, isn't it? <laughs> would you would you make the sacrifices this Birmingham micro-engraver's made in the Oxford? No, he's gone to, he's gone to a lot of trouble. Uh, a Birmingham micro-engraver has gone to extreme lengths to produce what he thinks is the world's tiniest nativity scene. Now, the minuscule image of a manger was engraved by hand on a speck of gold inside the eye of a needle. Just think of that. Speck of gold inside the eye of a needle. The scene's creator used a medical microscope, and listen to this, he said he took drugs to lower his heart rate in order to produce the minuscule work. He said, I actually engraved between heartbeats. He also said that he has Botox-styled injections around his eyes every three months to make sure there are no distractions from his nerves and muscles while working. That's amazing. But, uh, you'd, you'd wonder whether that was healthy in the long run. You would. You, you wouldn't think it would do you much good, really. You I don't know about this idea of you know, deliberately slowing your heart down and all this business. Sounds so then much. if it's so small, small, who can see it? Well, I don't know. I suppose you've got to get under this. You'll have to let you look into his medical microscope and have a look at what he's left. God, I suppose. What's <laughs> the, wouldn't it? I you know, look. Look, it's fascinating, and everybody does something that's un, unbelievably brilliant. But most people will never do that. No, no. It's. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, to get a medical microscope <laughs> to see uh, the work he does. Look, look. On one level, unbelievable. Yes, absolutely fantastic. But I'm sort of wondering whether that would make any sense. A speck of gold inside the eye of a needle. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you'd be able to see the <laughs> speck of gold, let alone what's on it, wouldn't they? You know, without, without a great microscope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Russell, that takes us out of this week. You have a great weekend. Um, good luck with your e-scooter if you're on one and um, keep your eye out for a speck of gold. Okay, in a needle, right. <laughs> in a needle. That was uh, Russell Anby and what's making news, listeners. Do have a great weekend. We'll catch you soon. 